0: If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to
1: We have our scripture reader. We'll have her come on up here. Where's Savannah? Come on up here, Savannah. Savannah.
2: John 3, 3-5 Jesus replied, I tell you the truth unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus. how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again Jesus replied, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit
1: All right, we're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church presently. I don't know, do we we want the lights back up? That'd be great. Thanks. Is it getting warm in here? Anybody? Turn the AC on, Jerry. (laughs) It It gets super warm up here, even though it may be cold back there. So, I mean, a thermostat probably needs to be in my pocket. It was 71. Oh, man, no wonder it's 80 degrees up here. Okay, so no napping, right? Um, John 3, we are, um, we're in a section of this God with us year that's going to be Jesus with us, and we're going to walk through the Gospel of John. In a lot of ways, um, Jesus is with us, he said he would always be with us, and we're going to look through this gospel to see how and who he was with, uh, how he was with them. And today, in John 3, we're with Nicodemus. Um, raise your hand if you've ever been subject to peer pressure. Okay? You don't have to be a kid to understand what peer pressure is. Peer pressure is rampant among adults. too. it's just more subtle. Okay? Uh, Well, sometimes (laughs) it can be actually more uh, brutal. Um, But peer pressure can do uh, strange things. It can drive you to do strange things. And I'm not talking about just the crowd who wants you to do something stupid, although that's a form of peer pressure. I'm talking about the kind of peer pressure where the group that you're in all disagrees with an idea, or a a proposal, or a decision, or a person, all of these people that you're with disagree with something, and you're back there going, I'm not so sure. You know, usually in groupthink, it's the loudest person that starts to ball rolling toward, no, that's dumb, no, we don't want to do that, no, if it's, uh, hey, let's go to Olive Garden, the first person that doesn't like Olive Garden, even if everybody else does, will say, "I'm not going to Olive Garden. They have terrible salad." Oh, okay. Uh, well, how about you know Taco Bell? Uh, you know, it's just the loudest person that sets the tone. But somewhere within you, in that group of people, there's something that says, "No, I really want Olive Garden. I, I really do, and I think I want to say something about it." You know, it's something as trivial as that. It's just hard. How much harder is it when truth is on the line? When you're convicted of something that is right and just and good, and everybody else around you seems to say, no, no, we're not doing that. That's not right. That's not good. And you think, yeah, 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 it is. But you're quiet. You don't want to put yourself out there for fear of being ridiculed, shut down, I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever wondered if, if you're all alone in that and you just wonder, what, am I, what can I say? When I was in my college years, uh, I worked as a pizza delivery driver for Domino's. Uh, it was a fun job. At the time, I, I, just, I just liked driving around town, making people happy with pizza and getting money for it. And... Um, There was one particular Friday night, which was always busy, that we just got slammed with orders. I mean, the phones were ringing off the hook, my manager was going nuts, and so he pulled me and this other guy who was brand new, I mean, I'd known him maybe a day or two, pulled us out of our cars and said, you guys, on the make line, right now, we got to get caught up. So me and this other guy that I'm just starting to get to know, but I have this feeling about this guy. He's a little different than all of my other pagan friends that worked there. All of my other foul-mouthed friends that worked there. All of my other twisted friends who, lived, who worked there. This guy was different, and I didn't quite catch it, but I thought, maybe this guy is a person of faith. So we're standing beside each other, and these, these sauce-laden dough right in front of us, and I'm looking at orders, and I'm throwing pepperoni, and he's throwing mushrooms, and we're going around, and we're trying to work as fast as we can, and it just occurs to me, this may be my chance. So while I'm tossing sausage everywhere, I go, to, I go and I look at him, and I'm like, hey. He goes, what? I said, are you a Christian? He smiles a little bit, he goes, yeah, yeah, I am. So I'm like, why am I whispering? (laughs) He said, I don't know. And that's about all we said. (laughs) We're working and we're trying to get stuff out. And we're, you know, he didn't last three more days. I, I would have liked to have seen him. You know, we like to tell you the story about how we had Bible studies and prayer meetings and we converted all of our pagan friends, but we didn't. And he left and I was all alone again. Um, there's just some knowing glance that somehow or another I'm not alone. I'm not alone in my convictions or my beliefs. I want some company in this because I'm not so sure. Maybe somebody else feels the same way I do, but I'm just too scared to say anything. In John 3, we've got a guy named Nicodemus who was surrounded by powerful, very opinionated religious people, but Very loud about what they believed about Jesus. And they all condemned him. They all thought he was a troublemaker. They all thought this guy is is nothing. He's no one. He's just a renegade. And something inside Nicodemus says, "Ah, I don't know about that. Something's right about this guy. Something's good about this guy. And I need to know what and I need to know why. He was maybe intimidated by his peers, but he was not a coward. And so it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Now there's some speculation about why he came to him at night. Maybe it was that's when Jesus wasn't busy. Maybe it's because he didn't want to be seen. Regardless, that's when this meeting takes place. And when John writes his gospel, what John wants to communicate Over a hundred times in his gospel, is this idea of belief. The word in all of its forms in John occurs over 100 times. And John's purpose statement, he saves until last in chapter 20, verse 30, where it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So at the beginning of chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, one of about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. He was also one of the Pharisees' section of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. Only 70 of these guys ruled over all of, I don't know, the Israelite, Community, religious community of that time. He was a very influential, very powerful, very learned, very rich man. And he comes to Jesus, not with his own agenda, but as almost as an equal, because he, tell, he talks to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which that ought to give you a, a, a bit of a clue right now about what Nicodemus thinks of Jesus. Rabbi is teacher, and not everybody could be called that. He honors Jesus by that title of teacher. He says, We know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Credit to Nicodemus. He sees who Jesus is, and Jesus doesn't disappoint. Sometimes Jesus gets really vague with people who really aren't genuine. He sees, I think, Nicodemus is genuine here and he wants to engage him immediately. So in verse three, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is, I think, the first section of of this passage. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, born from above. Now, we're trying to unpack a lot of what we think of when we hear the word, the phrase born again. We have all kinds of different religious connotations in Western Christianity, but what did Nicodemus hear? How did he hear it in his culture, in his time frame, in his mindset? It wouldn't have been a new thought to him because it seems like he's a little confused because he takes Jesus literally. It's almost comical in verse four when he says, how can a man be born when he's old? surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. That'd be painful. I mean, for both parties involved, right? But there was this idea in the Israelite culture that when a person who wasn't a Jew came to faith in the God of Israel, a proselyte, if you were, they were initiated into the religion of the Jews and they were, it was called being reborn. It was called being renewed into a new birth. But Nicodemus was born a Jew. Why would he have to be reborn into a faith he was already born into? So he's a little confused about this. And this isn't the first time we see the concept of birth in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, verse 12, we're told that those who receive Christ, who believe in him, are given the right to become what? Children of God born not of the will of a, of a man or, or of the flesh, but born of God. So Nicodemus is confused. So Jesus, when this happens in conversation with Jesus, sometimes Jesus goes into greater detail and he does. In verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Well, this is more detail. This is more interesting here. So If Nicodemus doesn't get the first one, maybe, since Jesus rephrases this, he begins to get the second time. Because I wonder, how would Nicodemus have heard this? Did his mind immediately go back to Ezekiel 36, our chapter 36? This isn't the first time the Bible mentions water and spirit together. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, God says, I will take you out of the nations. I will bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is Old Testament stuff that God says, I will put my spirit in you. This is way before Acts chapter 2, way before Pentecost, way before the church age, that Ezekiel sees this vision that God is going to put his spirit into people with a new heart, a rebirth. We must be born again. This is something God does in a person who desires and asks. I mean, you can learn information. You can pray. You can do religious things, you can serve, but it's God who gives birth to you in a new way. He's the one that generates life by his word. It's not something we can do. I've heard people say, um, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't. Well, I've been going to church. My parents raised me in church, so I, I'm a, I've been a, been a Christian all my life. No, No, you haven't. There was a time when you were an enemy of God and you had to repent of your sins and be made into a new creation. I don't care if that was when you were five years old or when you're 50. There was a time when you were outside of the family of God and you had to come to a conclusion that you were a sinner lost without Christ and you had to come to that conviction and, and receive Salvation birthing process is something that you want, something you submit to after the crushing realization that you're dead in your sins and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus says you are born of water and spirit. There is a cleansing and there's being made holy. There's a washing and there's being filled. And I would maintain that water and spirit correspond directly to baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit to live out the Christian life. And just to make sure I'm not making this up, I went looking for other scriptures that might have the same theme running through it. And I found Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, And we all share, or were made the drink, of one spirit. Ephesians 5, 26, where Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And then a few verses out of Titus 3. This is the gospel in a nutshell. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy hated by others and hating each other but when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done in us by righteousness but according to his own mercy and here it is by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's all over the place. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Verse 7, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This should be a given to all of us. The third movement of this text, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to where Jesus talks about himself. In verse 12, he's trying to explain to Nicodemus, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. But just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, there it is again, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Who's the son of man? And what about a snake? And what about this lifted up business? What is he talking about? Well, we need a little backstory here. We need to rewind in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Clear back toward the beginning of your Bible. In Numbers chapter 21 we see the people of God in the desert and they're grumbling against Moses. Where's the water? Where's the food? Where's, you know, we don't have our daylight donuts that we like with the frosting that's been changed. You know, we don't, uh, we don't like any of this stuff. And God says, I'm tired of this. I'm done with you. And he sends in a bunch of snakes to the camp and starts biting people. And they're poisonous snakes. And people start dying. Okay, this is serious stuff. And Moses begins to repent, and he starts to pray, and he starts to do it before the Lord. And, and God says, form a snake out of bronze, attach it to a pole, and lift it up. And all who look upon the snake will be healed. And Moses is like, okay, I've seen enough really out there things, so I'm not going to mess around. I'm just going to do what you say. And he did it, and it works. And Jesus looks at that story and he said, I'm going to one-up that one. The people of Israel who were sick and dying looked upon that snake lifted up on a pole and they were healed of their snake bite. But Jesus says, look, I'm the one who's going to be lifted up on a pole and I'm going to not just heal somebody of some venom running through their, their veins. I'm going to cure the original serpent bite that put all of humanity into darkness. I will cure that. I will give life I will give eternal life to all those who look and believe and who is this son of man he says it twice in those two verses and the guys at the Bible Project have put together uh, another video that I just need to share with you It's it's not off topic by any means but I think it will explain a lot of who Jesus says he is so, let's watch.
0: If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is,
2: the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the Empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the
0: world is this
2: about? Well he's told that these beasts symbolize violent prideful kings and their empires. Oh like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah and these creatures might seem random to you but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then, the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image.
0: So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more.
2: Yeah, they are to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster, and so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for
0: that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like
2: beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, he was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast and then after this Cain's children spread their animal like violence and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride the city of Babylon okay Babylon so fast forward this is where Daniel is enslaved having this bizarro dream exactly now watch what happens next in Daniel's dream he sees into God's throne room where a court is set up and God condemns the beast to destruction that's great And then Daniel sees that there is actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right. The throne that humanity left behind. Right. There has not been a human who is able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the son of man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnerships renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship. So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one. Hmm on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And Then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his
0: life. Wait, rule the beast by dying?
2: Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So
0: Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with
2: God to rule the world. And so now Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence. One that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love.
1: Rule the beast by dying. To overcome sin by dying to it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is it any wonder that Paul in Romans 6 talks about being buried with Christ in baptism, who do you bury? A dead person. If you're buried with Christ in baptism, it's dying to yourself. It's dying to your old life. It's being resurrected into something brand new, a life alongside Jesus. An eternal life, he says, isn't just something that you wish for, that will come someday, eternal life, begins the moment that you are made new. For those of us who are walking in new life in Christ, eternity has already begun. It's today. And then from now on, baptism isn't just something that you do to get your ticket punched that someday you go to heaven. Baptism is identifying with the very death of Jesus being buried with him and so to attain resurrection by his power and defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the beast that is ruling the world and trying to take as many of us with it as he can by being reborn by water and spirit is not only a requirement for entrance into the kingdom, it's a gift from a loving God that makes entrance possible. There is no other way. And it's followed then by the most famous verse in the Bible. For, which ought to tell you there was something before that that matters. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world everyone and believe it or not that includes you I mean for some reason we can detach mentally like oh I know God loves the world but not me (laughs) wait wait you're in the world right I mean you're a part of the world so yeah God loves the world that means he loves you no 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 no, he can't love me because you know see I'm a special kind of sinner and God's love is not that powerful but it is (laughs) it really is you must be born again. This isn't about trying to be a better person, having your best life now. I mean, it's not about being good. It's not about doing a bunch of religious things. It's all about submitting yourself humbly to a birthing process that requires your death to yourself and being given new life by means of water and spirit and obedience. But somehow... Over time and history, we have somehow mudd- muddied the waters. We've had somehow the practice and the method and even the need for water baptism has become questioned or even abandoned by some. You might be familiar with an Old Testament story in the book of 2 Kings. A guy named Naaman. Raise your hand if you remember this, this Naaman, okay? Naaman was a foreign Guy who wasn't an Israelite. He was uh, a military official of Aram. He was an Aramean. And he had leprosy. Leprosy is incurable. There's no hope for you. If you have leprosy, you're an outcast and you cannot be, you have no hope at all. Terminal. And somehow or another, there was a little Israelite young lady who had been taken captive and was serving in Naaman's house. And she tells Naaman's wife, hey, there's this prophet in Israel that might be able to help Naaman. And so Naaman says, I got nothing to lose. So with great amount of gifts and generosity, he gathers up all these really great things and he tromps off to Elisha's house and says, you know, basically, I'm going to buy you with all this stuff so that you can heal me. And he knocks on the door, and Elisha doesn't even bother coming to the door. He sends a messenger to the door, basically knowing who it is and why he's there. And the the message is, Naaman, go and dip in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be clean. So keep your gifts, keep your stuff. The prophet doesn't want to talk to you. Just go do this. Naaman is incensed he's insulted he's livid he's just he can't believe it like i've got rivers back home i could dip in those the jordan was a muddy not very nice doesn't very not very big it's just it's just a i don't know it's just like the neosho you know it's just i mean it's nothing to look at um sorry if i insulted your river um but it wasn't like anything majestic like the Mississippi or anything like that. It was just an over, overgrown, glorified creek that um, Naaman's like, you know, I, what did I come all this way for to do that? Well, one of his servants got enough courage, talked some sense into him and said, basically, you know what? If this prophet would have asked you to do something noble or heroic or difficult, you would have done it. What's the harm? What do you have to lose? Just go do it. And he did. And he was cleansed. Sometimes the grace of God is so, it's not easy. I mean, it costs so much. It costs Jesus' life. But it's so simple that we're thinking, you know, there must be something more to this. There must be, it must be harder than this. It can't be just that I receive it. It can't be just that I believe and trust, and it can't be just that I'm going to have to do something to earn this, right? That's not how grace works. Oswald Chambers says it this way in his devotional. He says, The gospel of the grace of God awakens an intense longing in human souls and an equally intense resentment because the truth that it reveals is hard to swallow. There is a certain pride in people that causes them to give and give, but to come and accept a gift is another thing. I will do anything, but don't humiliate me to the level of the most hell-deserving sinner and tell me that all I have to do is accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever God rules. It's not some distant, faraway place. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It's now, but it's not yet. It's here, but it's far off. God's kingdom extends to wherever God's in charge. So it makes sense that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here, just like it is there. So maybe you come to this statement of Jesus, this declaration that defines who is able to enter the kingdom and who isn't. You must be born again. And maybe you're like Nicodemus. How can this be? How can it be like this? And maybe we react like Naaman at the edge of the Jordan River. He's embarrassed and he's humiliated. He's humbled at the thought of just being buried in the water, a sign of obedience, a place of birthing, a gift of the Holy Spirit. But belief in Jesus, we've got this idea of what believing is. Belief in Jesus is so much more than just saying, well, I know, I agree. Belief is so much more than a mental assent to facts. Belief is trust. Belief says, I will follow. Belief says, I'll do whatever he says. I place my trust and my faith in this person but that's what belief in Jesus is all about. What happened to Nicodemus? Well, we see Nicodemus two more times in John's gospel. One in John 7, the latter part of John 7, in verse 45, there's some some Pharisees giving some people a hard time. The temple guards were supposed to bring in the Jesus in, and the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him in? And the guards said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And the Pharisees retorted, you mean he's deceived you also? Has any of the rulers of of Pharisees believed in him? No. Well, except for Nicodemus, he's working on it, but um, does our law condemn anyone? Oh, Nicodemus says he'd gone to Jesus earlier, and was one of their number, the Pharisees, and he asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? He sticks his neck out pretty far right here. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Oh, that's a slam. You hick, you hillbilly, you backwoodser, what are you doing? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus is smacked down. Pretty hard. Doesn't stop him because we see him again in John 19. After Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' crucifixion, excuse me, after Jesus' crucifixion, after Jesus' death, we see in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away he was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen in accordance with Jewish burial customs. It is almost certain that Nicodemus lost his standing as a Pharisee, as a member of the Jewish ruling council. It is certain that his decision to follow and believe in this Jesus of Nazareth, who he believed was the Messiah, the Christ of Israel, he lost everything. But he gained more than he lost. Nicodemus found life, eternal life. And this is what Jesus says, that he will give to anyone who will believe, trust, put their faith in, follow him to be reborn by water and spirit. And I don't know where um, some of you are in this regard. You know, there's a baptistry behind me every Sunday, and I actually cleaned it. It's got fresh water in it, but it's cold. We've done that before. I'm just wondering if anybody in, within the sound of my voice needs to know more about what this is needs to know more about a decision that you know you've been wanting to make for a while, but you've thought, you know, if I just get my life straightened out first, I could. And you need to know that's backwards thinking and it's going to keep you from making a decision because you'll never get your life worked out the way you want before you'll submit to this. This is how new life happens. This is the, the gateway to get on the narrow path in order to follow and be filled. This is this is one thing that I would encourage you more and more. If, if you've thought, well, all I'm trying to do is to be a better person and to stop doing bad things, enough. all I'm going to try to do is to get to church and I'll just... That's not going to do it for you. You will be discouraged, you will get confused, you'll get disenchanted with the whole thing, and you'll miss new birth. And so I don't often just give invitations as such here but I do want to do this today and in the midst of our singing in the midst of communion um, if there is anybody here who needs to know more about this I don't want you to leave this building today without talking to me or one of our elders about this and if it's something that you think well this is embarrassing talk to Naaman (laughs) he'd still have leprosy if he wouldn't have done it Talk to Jesus himself. He was obedient to baptism. Not that he was a sinner, but that he knew that fulfilled all righteousness in order to do it. It was the beginning of his ministry and it could be the beginning of your new birth, your new life and a walk with God. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing some and we're going to lead up into uh, communion. And I just would really pray that God would work on your heart if he needs to and that that would be something that you would consider. God, thank you so much for your word that speaks. Thank you for the gift that new birth is that we can come to you broken and um, and sinful because you're the only one that can do anything about that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would help us Lead us in obedience to where we need to go. Thank you for um, providing the way. Thank you for being our foundation, our cornerstone, that you became sin so that we could be right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: First of all, I'd prepared something to say, and then Jim, some of his words kept hitting me in different ways. I think, okay, do I do with what was written, or do I do what Jim got my attention on, or do I do some of both? So I'm going to try to do a little bit of both. First of all, Jim asked about when was it. I think he talked about you to be 5 or 35 or whatever your age was when you was filled. Kind of a unique situation. Uh, I don't know if any of you can relate to this. I've actually been baptized twice in my life. Uh, Once because it was cool Once because it was important And I hate to admit this But the first time it was because It was cool And I was honestly trying to impress a girl That was the first time I was baptized I wanted to impress a girl The second time is because a girl impressed me And got me to believe a different way So So The uh, Valentine's week it was a time about love and care and compassion. And I actually, today, I have three of the most important valentines in my life with me today. My beautiful daughter, that I'm so proud of, and, and if you haven't heard the story of Grandma Pat, Grandma Pat lost her house, her entire lifetime belongings, 91 years old, and lost everything in her house and her car. and But Grandma Pat's here, is with us for a week or longer. We told her she can live with us forever, and we truly mean that. And then Jerry. Jerry led me to the real one. So when we talk about Valentine's, O'Kima, Oklahoma, Jim. I was married for about two years. Okeema, Oklahoma, in the Okima Church of Christ, <laughs> is where my life was changed forever. So since you asked, that's where it was at, the Okeema Church of Christ. Now, here's the weird part. I'm done with the emotions. Uh, GM, it gets kind of scary. I've done this several times, and it seems like almost every time I do something, I write about it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I don't know. Have no interaction from you. But yet, we use the same scripture, or we use the same story, and that's just weird. Again, this time, you'll see in a minute. Also, I did this Friday night. Saturday morning, I'm watching Facebook, watching wrestling. First of all, if you haven't heard, we have three kiddos have qualified for the state championships in wrestling so proud of them and anyway watching them and kind of reflecting i'm going through facebook and i find one of my sister's post on saturday not just do jim and i use some of the same stuff my sister who lives four hours away exact same concept some of the same storyline exact same scripture how freaky is that four and a half hours away Okay, here we go. Did you celebrate Valentine? Did you celebrate Valentine's Day, or did you any special th- lo- special things for the loved ones of your life on Valentine's Day, or sometime during the week of Valentine's? I did. Many of you did too. Matter of fact, one of the reasons we weren't here last Sunday, I took my wife and two children to their favorite Italian restaurant in North Kansas City. Thinking about all the cards, all the flowers, the presents, and the candy being exchanged, and all those special meals that many of you made made me think about why do we do all of this? Why do we do all of this this one day or one week of the year instead of doing it every day, all year long? Why do we have a worldwide holiday to celebrate love or to celebrate the giving of gifts for the showing of love and care to others. First of all, a little bit of history about Valentine's Day, or St. Valentine's Day, as it was originally called. In the 5th century, the standing pope of the time replaced the holiday, Lupercalia, with St. Valentine's Day. Then from about the 14th century, the day became a time to be a celebration to celebrate love and care for others. Just for fun. How much money do you think is spent in America alone on Valentine's Day? The National Retail Federation projects that this year, $19.6 billion, with a B, would be spent in the United States alone to celebrate the showing of love and care to others during the week of Valentine's. Wow, what a lot of money. $19.6 billion, to show others our love and care for them. And all honesty, as Jim also talked about, sometimes some of that money was spent just because of peer pressure. People making you feel that you have to do it. As we sit here this morning, Valentine's Day is over. But in reality, every day is a day to celebrate the love and care for others. Every day is a great day to show others that we care about them and that we truly love them. Every day of our lives, someone does this for us. Every one of us in this room have been given a special gift. This Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, and actually every single day, we get to celebrate that special gift. In our world, we've had a special time where the showing and love and care for others was displayed at a level that many of us could never begin to comprehend. That does not cost us one single dollar to experience for a lifetime. A gift of love that is second to none. John 3.16 a very special verse that most of us learned as children, sums it up pretty simply. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To show his love for us, our Lord, our God, sent his only Son to die for us, that we may have the eternal life. The next time someone asks you, What's the greatest Valentine gift you were ever given? The greatest gift of love. I think we could all say. The birth, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Our most precious Heavenly Father, we're about to take part in communion here this morning. As we partake of the bread and partake of the fruit of the vine, we're reminded that uh, we do these in the remembrance of you, remembering you of the ultimate sacrifice that was given so that we may have eternal life. We thank you, dear God, for sending your Son to die for our sins, that we may have that ultimate gift, that ultimate Valentine. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.